Sounds good. Well, church, this morning, uh, as we come to the book of Obadiah, we come to what is the shortest of all of the minor prophets. And in fact, being only 21 verses long and, and 440 words long, it's not just the shortest of the minor prophets, but it's actually the shortest book in all of the Old Testament by a long shot. Now, often in our world, we have the tendency to equate that which is, which is small in size to that which is insignificant in meaning. And unfortunately, that reality has often played out with the book of Obadiah as well. Because the fact is that Obadiah is not only the shortest book in the Old Testament, it is also statistically the least popular book in all of the Bible. According to BibleGateway.com, the book of Obadiah is the least read book in all of the scriptures. Less popular than Leviticus with all of its strange old covenant laws. Less popular than Second Chronicles with its long and monotonous list of Jewish kings. Less popular than Paul's relatively obscure pastoral epistles to Titus and Philemon. And I'm not sure whether it's because it's short in length. Or because it's hidden in the midst of an already unpopular section of Scripture with the, with the minor prophets. Or, or because it deals with the judgment of God. Or because its application is hard to figure out uh, what it means for our lives. Or, or whatever it may be. For, for all of these reasons, I'm sure, and more, Obadiah is the least popular or at least the least read book in all of the Scriptures. So so be honest with me for a second. Before the church asked you to read Obadiah this week, when was the last time that anyone here thought of Obadiah, much less opened their Bibles intentionally to Obadiah in order to read it? There's not a hand in the room. Even the bishop's hand isn't up. And, And mine certainly wouldn't be either. And what I would say to us this morning is that this is to our great detriment. Because when we actually do open up the book of Obadiah and dig into this prophetic word. What we find in this little book of Obadiah is a profound picture of two different ways to live that lead to two different outcomes in life, which have profound implications for every single person who is alive. Doesn't that sound important enough to take a few minutes and consider And so this morning, I want to challenge you not to let the unimpressive size of this book with its unpopular placement in the midst of the minor prophets lead you to believe that it has an unimportant message to proclaim. Because in fact, the exact opposite is true. And so if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to open it to the book of Obadiah towards the middle of the minor prophets after Hosea Hosea and Joel and Amos. You get to Obadiah. And together, let's consider the major message of this minor prophet. Now, the book of Obadiah, at its face value, as we heard read a moment ago, is a prophecy of judgment against the nation of Edom. That is what this book is. And as a very brief summary, uh, Edom was a a neighboring nation to the people of Israel. Uh, they were located on the other side of the Dead Sea from Israel, and they were uh, lived up in the, the clefts of the rocks. It was a powerful, and Edom thought it was an impenetrable location. 
And as a result, they believed and they acted as if and they treated others as if they were the king of the hill. But in verses 1 through 9, God tells us that he is going to humble Edom as a result of their great pride. In verse 3 and 4, he tells them their pride was misplaced. And that though they soared like eagles above the other nations, and, and though their home was like it was set upon the stars, they were not ultimately the king of the hill. And God was going to bring it all down. Verses 10 through 14, God provides specific accusations against Edom for why they were facing this judgment. And it's centered around their treatment of the Israelites, of God's people. But likely, during the time of Judah's destruction and captivity, which was recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. On that day, the, the Babylonian invaders came and descended upon Jerusalem. They killed God's people with the sword. They robbed and looted the household of God. They burned the temple. They broke down the city walls. They destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And they carried into exile all of those who managed to escape the sword. It was an event that would lead to 70 years of exile and from which God's people would never fully recover. And rather than using their, their power and their position to help and to assist God's people in their time of need, Edom instead piled on the destruction of God's people. In verses 10 through 12, we read, they, they stood aloof on that day when strangers carried off the wealth of Jerusalem and cast lots for the city. They gloated over and rejoiced in Jerusalem's destruction. In verse 13 to 14, we see that they not only watched over, but they also participated in the carnage that took place. They entered into the city. They joined in the looting. They, 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 cut, it off. they cut off the fugitives who were trying to escape and handed them over to their captors. Edom participated in the destruction of God's people. And for that, they would face judgment. And so in verses 5 through 9 and verses 15 through 21, God warns them of the judgment that was coming. He told them that their judgment would not be partial, as the judgments of the world tend to be, but that their judgment would be complete, as only the judgment of God can be. God makes clear that as they had done to His people, so He would do unto them. The prophecy ends with a great proclamation that the kingdom shall be the Lord's. It's Obadiah saying that it is actually God who is the king of the hill. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. And his people, who are at at present scattered and devastated, would one day dwell in safety in God's kingdom. This is the, the prophecy of Obadiah. At its face value, it is a terrible message of judgment against Edom and an incredible message of hope for the people of Israel. It's a prophecy for two different nations who will ultimately experience two drastically different outcomes and futures. That is what the book of Obadiah is. But I believe that more important than than just understanding what the book of Obadiah is, we really need to understand why it is. Why is it that these two nations end up with two such very different destinies? But why does Edom face a future of judgment? And Israel faced a future of hope. And to understand the why of the book of Obadiah, we need to dig a bit further back into the story. Because this prophecy didn't originally begin with two different nations. But instead it was birthed out of two different brothers. 
You see, the nation of Edom was not just a neighbor to Israel, but they were distant relatives of one another. They both originally came from the same family. Back in Genesis chapter 25, you may remember the story of Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau were the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah and were in the line of uh, the family of Abraham, who was the father of faith. Now, this family had been given a great blessing by God. Years earlier, as recorded in Genesis chapter 12 and, and Genesis chapter 15, God had chosen Abraham out of all of the nations of the earth. And he made a covenant promise with him that he was going to turn Abraham into a great nation, that he would be Abraham's God, and that Abraham's offspring would be God's people. This ultimately became the birthright of Abraham's descendants, marked by the covenant sign of circumcision. And as God gave to Abraham that promise and that birthright, he also gave to Abraham a blessing. That God would bless those who blessed Abraham, that he would curse those who cursed Abraham, and that out of all of the nations on the earth, Abraham's family would be blessed by God. This was an incredible promise and an incredible blessing that the God of the universe would put his pleasure, put his delight, put his protection and his blessing and his favor, put his very name upon a people, that he would give his very presence to and among a people. Now, Abraham eventually had a son named Isaac, and he passed that promise and blessing on to his son. When Isaac grew up and got married, and when his wife eventually became pregnant, he was going to pass that blessing and birthright onto his son as well. But, but before his son was born, the Lord said to Isaac's wife, Rebekah, that two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The older shall serve the younger. And so when it came time for the children to be born, Esau was born first. And in, in that culture, it would have meant that he would have received the birthright, and he would have received the family blessing. And Jacob was born second. But Jacob came out of of, of the womb holding on to Esau's heel. It was as if he was grasping to come out first in order to get that family blessing, in order to get that birthright from the very beginning. And that struggle continued throughout their lives. When they came of age, Esau came in from the fields one day, exhausted and starving. And so he begged Jacob uh, to eat some of the stew that Jacob had made. Now, Jacob, seeing an opportunity, offered to sell Esau some stew for his birthright. Esau was so hungry that he gladly made the exchange and sold Jacob his birthright for some bread and some lentil stew. Sometime later, Jacob saw another opportunity. And as he had taken advantage of his brother's ravenous appetite to obtain his birthright, so he would take advantage of his father's poor eyesight in order to obtain his father's blessing. And so with the help of his mother, wearing his brother's clothes so that he would smell like his brother and having put fur all over his body so that he would feel like his brother's hairy arms, Jacob tricked his father into giving him the family blessing. At this, Esau was irate, and he wanted to kill his brother. So Jacob had to flee from home and live with his uncle for the next 20 years. But through all of this, Jacob was able to obtain that which he had wanted from his birth. 
when he came out grabbing his brother's heel. He had the family birthright and the family blessing that he so desired. He was in the line of the people of God and he had received the promised blessing of God. Now eventually at the end of their lives, Jacob and Esau experienced a brief time of reconciliation. But it didn't last long. Because as was prophesied about them, both Jacob and Esau became the heads of two different nations. Jacob was later renamed Israel after he had wrestled with God for God's blessing. And Esau was later called Edom, which which means red because Esau had a reddish hue and tint to his skin and had red hair. And so the nations of Israel and of Edom were birthed out of this history of division. And eventually the enmity between these two men resurfaced in their descendants and remained through the history of God's people up until the time of Obadiah. This is a story of like fathers, like sons. And at this point, I want to pause for for just a moment to acknowledge that sometimes when we hear this account, when when we read this story, we can feel a little bit sorry for Esau, can't we? You might feel a little bit sorry for Esau. I mean, Jacob seems like a pretty big scoundrel throughout most of this story. And and Esau comes across looking like a pretty nice guy and and a relatively innocent victim in all of this, right? And while I would agree that Jacob is a scoundrel in the early part of his life, and that Esau does appear to be the more moral of the two brothers... I think when we actually uh, take a step back and look at what actually happened to this account, and when we consider what really matters to God, our perspectives on this story can drastically change. For what we see over and over and over again throughout his life and throughout the life of his descendants is that Esau and eventually Edom saw no value in the things of God. Throughout this story, Esau was a man who was completely controlled by the appetites of his stomach and by the passions of his flesh. Think about this for just a moment. When Esau sold Jacob his birthright, what he was doing is that he was willing to trade away the great promises of God. God's protection, God's provision, God's blessing. Most importantly, God's relationship and the privilege of being a part of God's covenant people. He was willing to give that all away for a cup of soup. The book of Hebrews said that he sold away his birthright for a single meal. That's how little Esau thought of God and of his promises and of his blessings. That's how little he believed any of it was actually worth Having a relationship with God wasn't worth a few bites of food to Esau. In fact, when Esau made the trade with Jacob for the birthright, Esau actually thought that he was getting the better end of the bargain by getting a few bites of food in exchange for what he thought was worthless. At the time of the trade, he said, what use is a birthright to me? Esau saw absolutely no value in God or in the things of God. In fact, Esau hated God. Genesis 25, 34 says that Esau despised his birthright. He wanted nothing to do with God's promises and God's ways. We see that again just a chapter or two later in the story when Isaac blessed Jacob and sent him away in order to marry a Hebrew woman who would share his faith. 
so that he would not marry a Canaanite woman who would likely destroy his faith. Uh, And the Bible says that when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please his father, he immediately went and took one as a wife. His heart was so set against the ways of God and against the people of God that he was making decisions in his life just to spite God and his ways and his people. This was Esau. And this became Edom. They had no need for God. They took pride in themselves and in their own strength and in their own defenses. They were impenetrable, they thought, up on the rocks. What use did they have for God? This was Esau and and this was Edom. And so when you take a step back and look not at the morality of their lives, but at the faith of their lives, you end up with two drastically different pictures. Throughout his life, Esau saw no value in the promise of God. But from before he was even born, Jacob was clamoring to have the promises of God. As a young man, Esau wasn't willing to be inconvenienced by temporary hunger in order to hold on to the privilege of being a child of God. As a young man, Jacob was willing to scrap and to claw and to cheat and to steal in order to be able to be a child of God. As their lives played out, Esau hated his birthright and despised God's blessing. Beside the river Jabbok, Jacob was willing to wrestle with God, to hold on to God, to be injured by him. He would not let go of God until he had received God's blessing upon his life. From the beginning to the end, these are two exactly opposite stories of faith. One saw no value in a life of faith. The other saw great value in a life of faith. One wanted nothing to do with God and His ways. The other wanted, would do whatever it took to be associated with God and with His ways. And this ultimately leads us to the, to the why of Obadiah. But why does Edom face judgment and Israel receive promise? But why is Edom cast down and Israel lifted up? Why does Edom not have a future but Israel has a great hope? It's not because Edom was any worse than Israel. I mean, earlier in their histories, you would argue that it was the other way around. That morally, Jacob was way worse than Esau. He was deceiving and cheating and a scoundrel. But with God, it's never ultimately about our morality, is it? With God, it's never ultimately about how good of a person you are. For the great hope that we have in God is that we are saved by grace through faith apart from the works of the law apart from how well we are able to follow all of the rules. Our faith is never about how good we are. Instead, it is always about how good God is. It's never about us and our behavior. Instead, it's always about God and His great promises. Esau and Edom despised and rejected the promises of God. Jacob and Israel cherished and clung to the promises of God. And this ultimately is the difference. That is the reason why. God is faithful to his promises to bless his people Israel. He will bless those who bless them and he will curse those who curse them. It has nothing to do with the goodness of Jacob or the goodness of Israel, but it has everything to do with the goodness of God and the assurance of his promises that he has given to his people. God will do what he has promised to do. So that's the the what and the why 
of Obadiah. It's a prophecy of judgment against Edom and of deliverance for Israel that is sourced in the promises of God to bless His covenant people. But I think even here, after we understand the the what and the why, we still have the question of why does this matter to us? Because none of us are a part of the nation of Edom. And none of us that I'm aware of are part of the nation of Israel. So why does what God had to say to these two nations some 2,500 years ago have anything to do with us and with our lives today? Why does this minor prophet matter to us? In order to show why it matters to us, I think we need to dig a bit further back into the story still. Because this prophecy ultimately isn't just about these two different nations. And it isn't just birthed out of the story of two different brothers. But it's also a story about two different kinds of people and two different ways in which to live. For while Esau and Jacob are absolutely real historical figures, they also serve as two different types into which all of humanity falls. For their lives represent the first time in history in which the covenant promises of God were either accepted or rejected. Where the blessing of God was either valued or ignored. But where the privilege of being God's people was either sought after or disregarded altogether. And as a result, they become both an example and a warning. For every person who has ever lived. We see this in our New Testament reading today. Out of the book of Hebrews. Where the writer warns us. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And then he points to Esau as an example. Of one who did not value the things of God. And failed to inherit the blessings of God as a result. By implication he's also saying that if you do value it. If you do value the things of God. You can obtain the grace and the blessing of God. And part of the good news of the gospel is that through the work of Christ on the cross, that by his death and his resurrection, he has opened up the possibility of having a relationship with God to all of the people of the earth. The covenant promises of God and the blessings of God are no longer tied to one particular nation. But as Paul says in the book of Galatians, that if you are Christ's, that if you have put your faith and your trust in Jesus, Then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. Through Jesus, we all have access to the promises and the blessings of God. In Him, we all have the ability to be children of God. To enjoy the privilege of living under His care. To enjoy the safety of living under His protection. To enjoy the goodness of living under His blessing. To enjoy the hope and the peace of living under His future. We can know God as a good, good Father. And we can know His love for us as His beloved children. This is now available to anyone and to everyone who desires it. We don't have to fight and to wrestle and to cheat and to steal to obtain this. It's available to everyone. But the reverse of this is also true. That just as Esau dismissed the value of his birthright and the blessing of God, we can do that as well. And in the same way that this rejection of God led ultimately to the demise of the people of Edom, 
so will our rejection of God and His promises for our lives lead to our demise and our judgment as well. In this way, the prophecy of Obadiah is like a a microcosm for all of human history. And this is why this major message from this minor prophet matters to us. It's why it matters to you. It's why it matters to everyone. Because there are really only two options. So which will you choose? Many people in the world today do not believe the promises of God. They see no value in having a relationship with Him. They see no benefit for their lives in following His ways and experiencing His blessings. If they had the ability, they'd sell God and everything having to do with Him for a single bite of food. Because as Paul says in Philippians, their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. Their minds are set only on earthly things. And as a result, like the Edomites, their end will be destruction. This is the warning of Obadiah. But there is another way. Like Jacob, we can believe the promises of God. We can cherish being His covenant people. We can do whatever it takes and give up whatever is necessary in order to experience the blessings of God in our lives. We can cling to God and hold on to Him and not let go of Him no matter what life throws at us, no matter how painful it may be. We can hang on to Him until, in the end, we will inherit the kingdom of God. This is the great hope of Obadiah. Which will you choose? My prayer for you, church, is that day by day by day, for each and every day of the rest of your lives, that you will choose to trust and to believe in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That trusting in Jesus and His provision for your life, you will cherish your birthright as children of God and members of His covenant community. That you will believe in His promises, delight in His blessings, and rest secure in His future. May we all do so for God's glory and for our good. Amen.